I'm super excited to be back with each and every one of you as we continue on in the Titus series. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So if you need a Bible, uh, our awesome ushers will be passing those out. Just kind of raise your hand uh, and they will make sure they get those to you. And so in our last teaching um, in the letter of Paul to Titus, we discussed Paul's mandate to Titus, which was to teach what accords with sound doctrine, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And Paul would outline in that particular section of the letter how believers in the body of Christ should live in accordance to the word of God. And he outlined these groups in the following order. So if you're taking notes, you can write these out. He he outlined the older men, the older women, the younger women, younger men, Titus as pastor and leader of the church, And slaves. Paul showed us in this previous text that spiritual maturity was not marked by age, but rather by application of the scriptures in one's life. We came to find that God uses the older, spiritually mature men and women in the church to really help disciple and lead that younger generation in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It became evident that within the organization of the church, the responsibility of discipleship did not primarily fall on the pastor, but this was an accountability thing for all of these older men and women to help steer each other in the fear of the Lord and in the scriptures as well. And rather, each member of the church body has a role. And that role is to live out the scriptures according to what is, here it is, patterned. What is patterned. And Titus was to do just that. He was to set the example and to model for the body what right living looks like in alignment with that of right teaching. And so Paul concludes within these groups of believers, the slave. And he says that the slave is to submit themselves to their masters, regardless of how that slave was treated or not treated. And ultimately, friends, the response and the responsibility of the slave is to live well. And it's really no different from those who were enslaved or those who were free. And so it's an understanding of this particular text that leads us to the last five verses of chapter 2 of Titus. If I were to outline for us this morning these last five verses of Titus chapter 2, it would go as follows in the respective order. So if you're writing notes, I would encourage you to write these down. Grace makes known the great gift of salvation. Grace makes known the great gift of salvation. Uh, Two, grace disciplines us and grace teaches us. Thirdly, grace allows us to look back in humble adoration while looking forward with great anticipation. Fourthly, grace frees us and grace keeps us. Grace frees us and grace keeps us. And lastly, grace commissions us. If I were to put a tag on the text this morning, it would be this. Grace teaches us. And grace leads us. So with that being said, with that um, summary of the previous chapter, um, go ahead and pick me up in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Again, this is the Apostle Paul writing this letter to Titus. And he says these words. For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Then verse 15, here it is. These things, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word that is living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father God, we pray that this morning you will open our eyes to grace. Open up our understanding to know what grace truly is. Lord, I ask that the prayers of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I ask and I pray this morning that you will help us be effectual doers of your word and not simply hearers that delude themselves. For it is in the doing of the word that we are blessed. Strengthen us by your grace. Hide me behind your cross. Use the words that I have to say. May those be your words. Lord, in my mind, may you lead me in all that I will say and do. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen and amen. On December 29th of 2020, NPR Music did a special cover on Steve Turner's book, Amazing Grace, the story of America's most beloved song. And Mr. Turner's book tells the story of lyricist John Newton and his conversion from being a slave trader to that of an abolitionist. Turner traces the evolution of this song from its origins in 1772, written in Newton's attic in Olney, England. Turner discovered that the lyrics of his famous song was developed from Newton's personal conversion experience. This idea of grace being God's unmerited favor to lost and broken sinners. If you aren't familiar with the lyric, allow me to recite just a bit of it this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Charles Spurgeon said this regarding God's grace. A person who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ. The new life within him tells him just that. Instead of regarding it as a burden, he gladly surrenders himself, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord. It is this reality that the Apostle Paul expresses to Titus and these network of home churches in Crete that this grace has in fact appeared. Paul will conclude chapter 2 with the reality of what the grace of God has done and should do inwardly for the believer in Jesus. Pick me up in verse 11 where it's Paul writing says these words. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. 
Right off the bat, we see that this verse begins with the word for. It begins with the word for. And and I mention that because it's referring to a particular point in the previous verse or verses. So what I would like to do is let's walk back to verses 9 and 10 of Titus chapter 2, where Paul says these words. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So what we see is that the slave's ability to submit to their earthly master, regardless of their treatment, will show their masters a different life response. To a slave master who owns slaves, it could be assumed that some were expected to be argumentative or not satisfactory in their work. And we saw a similar situation to this in my teaching of Philemon that I did a while back. We saw that Onesimus, who was a Phrygian slave, was considered prior to Christ doubly useless. There was a famous proverb um, that stated a Phrygian is the better and the more serviceable for beating. Uh, Meaning not only was Onesimus spiritually dead because of his unbelief, but he was not well pleasing in his work and he stole from Philemon. But God's divine providence and by God's divine providence, Onesimus ends up coming across the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And as you guys know, when Apostle Paul is preaching and he's out on a missionary journey, what ends up happening? People come to faith through the proclamation of the gospel. And as Onesimus comes and crosses paths with Paul, Onesimus comes to faith in Jesus. And what's really interesting is that it would be sometime after that pass that Paul would then send Onesimus back to Philemon to reconcile the wrongs that Onesimus did to Philemon. Now, you might be asking, why do I mention all of that? Why am I giving us this background here? Well, friends, we must first recognize that the gospel message in and of itself is a message of reconciliation and transformation. Not only does the gospel reconcile us to the Father, but it also reconciles us to our neighbor. The gospel changes us at the core of who we are and brings to light who God has called us to be. Now, realize that Onesimus returning back to Philemon in antiquity would be considered a death sentence. However, it's an opportunity that Paul sees that would allow Onesimus and Philemon to see the gospel of grace at work in a hostile situation. Check out what Paul says in Philemon verse 15 and 16. He says, for perhaps, for perhaps, I like that. It was for this reason that he was separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever no longer as a slave but more than a slave a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the lord philemon would now receive a doubly useful onesimus one who has been made spiritually alive as a brother in Jesus. But he will also have a servant now who who has the gospel and can now share the gospel with other slaves in that area where where Philemon is leading. Friends, is this relationship, and I want you to hear me when I say this, this relationship in antiquity was counter 
cultural. Why do I say that? I say that because you are now seeing slaves and master coming together to do gospel work and gospel ministry. To put it plainly, the gospel of grace would be on display for all of the Roman civilization to see. And Paul, in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, he shows Titus and the current reader that slaves, even in their low social status and position, are able to make much of the grace of God. Paul, in the same sentence regarding Christian slaves, uh, uses an interesting word for what living well looks like to others. He uses this word adorn, adorn in verse 10 of chapter two. And this word adorn in the Greek is cosmeo is where we can get our English word cosmetics from. It means to make neat, to decorate or to put in order. And Paul references this same word in first Timothy chapter two, verses nine through 10, as he's talking to women about how they should dress. Check it out. First um, Timothy two, verse nine. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. But check out verse 10 but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. This word adorn, friends, is beyond simple viewing pleasures. This is an imperative. This requires action. And Paul mentions that they are to put themselves in order by putting on what is right and what is godly. Paul points in verses 9 and 10, his point is extremely simple. By living out what you have been soundly taught, it allows others to know and to see this gospel of grace. Friends, your life and my life should reflect what God has freely given to us, and that is his grace. So it is here now, after that background, that in verse 11, where Paul will bring the why of right living amongst a chaotic and toxic culture to the forefront. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared in the Greek is epiphino. It means to appear to show, to give light to. What is interesting about this sentence in the Greek is the sentence actually starts off with the word appeared. If we were to read it in its proper Greek structure, it would read this way. It appeared, the grace of God bringing salvation to all men. Now, before we move forward, we must establish something. We, we have to establish the definition of grace. Grace is this, the unmerited favor of God by which we are receiving something that we did not and do not deserve. You see, understanding the very definition of grace brings about two important questions. And if you're taking notes, I would write this down. The first question is this, who has done the saving? Who has done the saving? The second question becomes, what are we saved from? Who has done the saving? What are we saved from? The who 
that appeared in human history to bring salvation to all those who would believe and are chosen by God is Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. I love what Paul says regarding Christ entering into human history. He, he makes mention of this in Titus chapter 1 verse 3. He says, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. If you remember from our earlier teaching in Titus, you can recall uh, this interesting word, kairos. Uh, Kairos is a particular point in time related to other points in time with a focus that this time is designated by a supreme authority. And Paul would say it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through, through, through the gospel. The appearance of Christ through the incarnation in human history shined a light into the darkness of humanity and our depravity to show our need to be made right with God. If you don't believe me, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul makes it pointedly clear. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we see, friends, that grace is in fact personified in the very person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this moves us to our second question. That if this grace that we have received and that has been made known is undeserved, what are we saved from? That this good news has been made known There means, obviously, that there's some bad news somewhere. And here it is. Grace saved us from the very wrath of God. I'm going to say that again in your hearing. Grace saved us from the very wrath of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 through 11, Paul says this. For if while we were enemies of God... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, and not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God demonstrated his very own love for those in whom he's chosen so that they may become the very righteousness of God in Christ. In exchange for your wickedness and my wickedness and our sinfulness and our brokenness, Christ steps in to absolve the rightful judgment that you and I were rightfully due. Friends, we're going to tackle this particular doctrine later on this morning. But before we move any further, I want to address the elephant that could potentially be in the room regarding part verse 11. It says, bringing salvation to all men. We'll address this doctrine later on in this sermon because there's some things out there called universalism where many people think that everyone's going to eventually become saved. 
However, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And we will again address that. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. I don't want us to miss what Paul is saying here. And it's quite profound, but yet it's extremely simple. Paul tells Titus in a few short words, it is grace that instructs us and it is grace that compels us. Grace instructs us and grace compels us. He mentions that this grace of God instructs us to do some things. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and to deny unworldly or worldly pleasures and desires. And the question here that really arises from the text is how does this grace instruct and compel us? And Paul makes this clear being inspired by the Holy Spirit in verse 11. Friends, it's an understanding what has been done for us that should move us to live in such a way that adorns the very life that we have in Jesus. If I know that it is God's grace that has saved me from the wrath of God and the righteousness of God, my entire outlook, your entire outlook should change. I can't know and you can't know and we can't know what we know about this book And what we know about this life in Jesus and continue living on as if we don't know the truth. I put a pithy statement here. The gospel demands a response. It is going to demand a response. The word instructing us here in the Greek is a rather interesting phrase. Uh, It is the word padeo, which means to discipline, to train or to educate. How does God's grace discipline to educate us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, pleasures, and pursuits? Here it is. Here's the answer. Grace reminds us of what we once were and where we once were headed. Friends, grace is a good reminder. See, because when you look back over your life prior to knowing Jesus, you, you, you've been in some stuff. You probably did some stuff, said some stuff, acted a certain type of way. And grace, once you come into faith, will remind you, hey, don't you forget where you were. Don't forget what you rightfully deserved. And remember, this discipline and training is for when? The text tells us in verse 12, in the present age. The present age. We live in this place between the not yet and the nasty here and now. And while we're here, we are not removed from the temptation of sin. We were not removed from the battle of sin. Uh, Rather, we are to guard ourselves in the truth and the knowledge of the scriptures. And here's the kicker. Here's the here's the key in obedience. In obedience. As parents, you may understand it this way. Um, although we are our children's primary disciple maker, eventually they're going to be out on their own. And within our home, we, we can provide the parameters by which our children are to act, think, and behave in our presence with the expectation that they'll do the same thing outside. And we aid in cultivating right living in our children, all with the hope that when they leave us, they'll leave well because they know well, and they know well because they've been taught well. And when our kids go against what we've established in our home, discipline is in place to remind them to get them back on track. And in the same way, 
God has chosen us as his very own possession, according to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. And is committed, God is committed to conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see a, a situation uh, in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. We're not going to have time to read it together, but we come up across a man, Simon the Magician, not to be uh, misconstrued with Simon Peter. So Simon the Magician, um, at this particular point, he hears the apostles. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and what's cool about this is that um, when it comes down to people who've come to faith and they're new believers in Jesus, those old tendencies of sin are sometimes still there. And so Simon the magician comes across a situation where he sees uh, the apostle Peter uh, and they're doing miraculous things uh, by the power of the spirit of God and Simon the magician sees what they're doing. And again, remember, he was a magician prior to doing these works. And so he sees this and he's interested. He's like, man, he, he, I, I will give you guys this amount of money if you can show me what you did. And Peter, rightfully so with holy indignation, calls him out and says, no, 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 doc, come here, come here. And Acts chapter eight, verse 22 documents what Peter says. He says these words, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart will be forgiven you. Just as a mother or a father that disciplines those in whom they love, our heavenly father who bought us with the price will do the exact same thing. Friends, our purchase by the blood of Jesus Christ was a fervent commitment to conform us into the image of Christ. The objective of sanctification is not to become a better you. It is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, the one who saved you and the one that justified you. Oprah ain't going to help you get into heaven. The self-help books aren't going to help you get into heaven. It's not about a becoming a Wesley 2.0 or anybody 2.0. It's about conforming to the image of Jesus. And the question, friends, that we have to ask ourselves this morning is what areas in our lives right now at this point are concealed and are proverbially hidden by God because we don't want that area to be addressed. What areas in your life are concealed with sin in your heart and needs to be addressed and repented of? And my prayer for each of us this morning is that we can submit, freely submit those things to the Lord those areas of unrighteousness in our hearts. And as we seek repentance of those sins, may we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord and put on Christ likeness. I'm going to say it again, as long as we are in this world, there's going to be a battle. Don't let any Christian tell you they don't struggle with sin. John called that out in the scriptures. He said, if you say you are without sin, you are a lie. But thank God for the advocate that we have through Jesus Christ, who that when we struggle with those things, when we're 
dealing with those things that we can submit those things to the Lord and he will provide and make a way of escape for us. But friends, here's the key. You have to be obedient. Hebrews chapter 12, verse six, puts it this way regarding those in whom God loves and has chosen. He says, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he punishes every son whom he accepts. So if I want to put this out there for you so you can know what this means, God's work at the end of the day will be completed in you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you aren't sitting sideways doing what you want to do, thinking that life is just sweet and easy, and you're not going to have to deal with the ramifications of the things that you choose to do. Because you are holy gods, he will discipline you. He will conform you so that you may look like his son. Friends, it's this grace that kept you from some things that you knew could have been damaging. Friends, it is this grace that is able to preserve your life even when you didn't value your own life. It is this grace that sustained you when you made unwise decisions. Well, I can think when I look back over my own life and the stupid stuff that I used to do and yet God's grace kept me. So how much more is God's grace keeping you let this grace also inform and conform you as we obey Jesus in every area of our hearts and lives verse 13 I love it looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus we see here that grace allows us To look back in humble adoration while looking forward with great anticipation. Check out Paul's language here. He says, looking for the blessed hope. Looking for, and depending upon what translation you're reading, some of your Bibles may say, while we wait on the hope. And for some readers, it could be assumed that this waiting is this sense of idle sitting twiddling your thumbs, just just waiting. However, the NASB provides the reader a more accurate translation. And here's why. The phrase looking for presumes that there is an active awaiting or anticipation for the arrival of Christ. This is not a person that is sitting down being unproductive in their work, but rather a person that is working diligently and eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. You and I as believers are called not to sit on our blessed assurance. We are called to get up, we are called to go out, and we are called to do the work of the ministry to bring glory to the Father. That's what we've been called to do. The intent behind what they are doing is based upon this beautiful scene of the appearing of Jesus coming back for his bride. And oh, what a glorious day that's going to be when the clouds are broken open and the trumpet sounds and we meet him in the clouds. That is what we await for, friends. 
And until then, you continue to work. You continue to do the work of the ministry. Don't, don't miss Paul's connection from verse 12 and 13, though. There, there is two important things to note. Uh, we see first that the very personification of grace in the incarnation of Christ, which brought salvation into human history at the right moment for those called by God to believe and in his life on earth, showing us what it looks like to truly live and have life more abundantly. Secondly, there is an eschatological anticipation of what is to come for the believer. We are to live well in the here and now as we actively work well to the glory of our great God till the moment we see Jesus face to face. We do what we do well in obedience because we know what is to come and that is Jesus returning for us in the clouds. Some of you know it as the rapture. We're waiting for him to come back. Uh, One of my most favorite things to do, uh, me and my wife love to do this, watch movie trailers. How many people like to watch movie trailers? Yeah. It's interesting because movie trailers, they're about 30 seconds to maybe 45 seconds. And and the object is to, the objective for a trailer is to show you what the movie is going to be like. It's not going to give you the entire picture, but it's going to give you small snippets of what you can anticipate the movie is going to be. And in the same way, friends, our lives as believers give a glimpse to the non-believer of what is to come, that as you're living your life in obedience and submission to Jesus that non-believers should be able to see your life and say man there's something interesting about that guy there's something interesting about that girl I I got to know more and guess what ends up happening you pull them into the movie you pull them into this experience with Jesus where they're able to come to faith participating in the gospel they're turned on by the Holy Spirit because of the work that is being done in their hearts and it all came about because God gave you the opportunity to participate in this ministry work by allowing your life to adorn Christ. Friends, this type of transformation can only be accomplished by God himself. It's not based upon us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, hallelujah, to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul makes it known here that the grace of God sanctifies us. The grace of God cleanses us. Paul says that Jesus has redeemed us from something for something. Jesus' death has redeemed us from every lawless deed. Paul then says, Jesus gave himself to us to redeem us. The language here is what many theologians will call the great exchange. Um, The fancy theological term here for this work is penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, This is a doctrine that many evangelical Christians today really struggle with. 
Because many circles think of this, this, this Christus victor. Uh, this simply is, is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And now we're able to live life more abundantly. Thank you, Lord. But that only deals with a portion of this thing called grace. See, penal substitution simply means that the penalty that we were rightfully due was paid by a holy and perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. So because God is also just and holy, the very wrath of God, of the Father, had to be satisfied. So many churches are out here preaching grace, 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 God's love, God's love, and I love it, and it's awesome. But you cannot preach a gospel of grace and not preach a gospel of justice. Both go hand in hand. See, the punishment and the wages of sin for humanity had to be absolved once and for all. If there was no punishment and no payment for sin, where would God's justice be found? If God doesn't absolve sin, he ceases to be just, he ceases to be holy. And therefore, friends, because of his character, he would cease to be God. Therefore, God, being rich in mercy and love, sends his holy, spotless, and blameless son, Jesus Christ, to go on a cross and to atone for our sins. Check out what the prophet Isaiah says about the atonement in Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Did you catch that? Scripture says that it pleased the father to crush the son. Why would this means be necessary and sufficient for the believer? Here's how it works. Many Jewish scholars within uh, the Roman law system can best explain penal substitutionary atonement known in law as respondent superior. Uh, in Latin, it literally translates, let the master be answerable. It is this idea of being vicariously liable. A well-known Christian theologian William Lane Craig mentions in this book, Atonement and the Death of Christ, how this principle works. He utilizes the legal terms to express substitutionary atonement as a legal pardon. He mentions um, in his, one of his writings about a nurse that came to him after one of his discussions, and I want to say this verbatim. So here it is, and I quote, this is what the nurse says. She says, I am a nurse. Dr. Craig, this principle is everywhere in medicine. If a chief surgeon is performing a surgery and one of the subordinates botches the surgery, even though the chief supervising surgeon did nothing wrong, absolutely innocent, he is the one who is held liable for the acts of that nurse or subordinate that did the medical malpractice. The liability of the subordinate is imputed to the superior. It is not transferred from the subordinate to the superior, but it is replicated to 
the superior. Friends, here is what Jesus did. He entered into human history, into the very creation that he created. He lived for 33 and a half years, fully God, fully man. He executes his ministry according to the will of the Father. For three years, ultimately pointing to the death, death on the cross. He is beaten, he is scourged, he is whipped until the scriptures tell us he is unrecognizable. He takes on the punishment and the way that you and I rightfully deserved everything you did wrong, everything you said wrong every mistake that you made Christ takes that upon himself he says I will take the hit and at that moment once he takes the hit before he dies he asks for a drink this drink that he has given is a mixture of water and vinegar it was what the scripture would say is an extremely bitter drink and only Jesus knew that the drink that he would ultimately take was going to be a drink of the wrath of God poured upon his life so that you and I might be saved only and in John 19 verse 30 before Jesus dies he says this awesome Greek word tetelestai friends this is huge for us to understand because this word in the Greek means paid in full however paid in full not only was it paid in full but check this out and I love this about Jesus and I love this about the scriptures that this word is in the perfect tense. Perfect tense. English lesson, here it is. Check this out. Why is that important? To put it plainly, not only when Jesus died on the cross was your sin and my sins paid in full, but those in whom he would call who didn't even know or hear the gospel message, the moment that the Holy Spirit would have their eyes open to that truth, they too would be saved. And Jesus wouldn't have to die on the cross again. Why? Because it was done once and for all. Friends, that is the paid in full that is about. That is what Jesus has done for us. And this is why this grace that you and I have, we should rejoice ever so much. We should be an awestruck wonder. Why? Because at the perfect time, as Paul would say in Titus, Jesus wrapped himself in flesh, lived for 33 and a half years so that we would be able to see that epiphany. Paul continues on saying that those who are redeemed will also be purified by Christ as his own possession. The saving blood of Christ not only saves us, but it cleanses us. And not only does it cleanse us, but friends, he keeps us. I love the hymn written by Robert Lowry, published in 1876. You may know it. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This precious grace is a reminder that we are not saved by our own merit or our own accolades or by our own goodness or by our own righteousness. It is only by the kindness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we are his and he is ours. We must not forget This last part of the verse says he redeemed us for something. 
purify for good works. Friends, he saved us so that we may do good works to bring glory to the Father because of what Jesus did. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, we are his poema created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and I love this, so that we would walk in them. The mere fact that you and I are sitting in this room Hearing the word of God consistently every Sunday is a testament to the goodness of God. You and I, prior to being saved, had no desire, had absolutely no desire in our hearts to know God or to love God. There's an intense Greek word that literally means that God dragged you. You, you didn't have this choice of saying, God, Lord, I, I'm going to come to you, Lord. You're my God and I'm your. No, 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 no. God dragged you. You didn't have a choice. And there's so many churches out here preaching that you go to God and you run into him with his arms. No, no, no. God dragged you. God sent his son into history so that you would know him. Keeps you from puffing up your chest, thinking that you got it, that you're righteous, that you're holy. It took God himself to bring us to himself, to make a people for himself, to give glory to himself. Friends, we have no stake in this game. And we should marvel at his grace. Every day you wake up, you should marvel at his grace. Oh, the mercy of God. If it had not been For the Lord who is on my side, Selah, where would I be? This grace should move us into constant adoration for God and to bring glory to his name. If Christ's death, burial and resurrection was a receipt for what was freely given and done for us, How much more should our lives be a receipt to other people for what Christ has done in us? This is Paul's point regarding grace. If the grace of God reached the worst of us, surely he can reach the Cretan. If if the grace of God met me in the muck and the mire, if the grace of God picked me up, turned me around, placed my feet on solid ground, then most assuredly he'll do it for them. Friends, we're, we're talking about what the scripture said, that they were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and here it is that the gospel went to Crete. Don't you ever for one moment think that the gospel cannot reach unreachable people. The gospel was made for unreachable people. You and I were unreachable, but thanks be to God that he thought about you, he thought about me, and he put it into action. We can oftentimes have our 
theological nose is so lifted up in the air, so high and falutin because we think we have this good news. We have all of this great stuff and we look at all of the other people and oh, look how lost they are. No, 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 no. Humble yourself because the same grace that met you is the same grace that meets them. This is why church planting is important. This is why church planting is necessary in unreached places because people need to hear the gospel. Verse 15 and we're out of here. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I hope you can feel the weightiness and the tension in the text here. What Paul is having Titus to do to teach sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, speak these things. What, what things? What, what things is he speaking? Teach sound doctrine, teach the gospel, and teach it in grace. This is not only a command for Titus to teach these things to others, but it's presupposed that Titus is to live these things. How many preachers and pastors do you see in the news, on TV, that are no longer in the pulpit, no longer doing ministry because they wanted to teach other people, but yet they didn't want to submit themselves to the text. How often do we find in our world today this happening? Friends, knowing the culture and creed and how their lifestyles are was the very antithesis of the gospel. And it makes it all the more important for Paul to tell Titus, stand firm. And friends, I implore you this morning, stand firm. Understand that this letter that has been written is a letter that has been addressed to Titus for his reading. But understand that most of these writers and most of those who receive these letters would read it to their congregation. So those who are listening in these network churches, as Titus is saying, remember these things, as Titus is saying, these are the things that we stand on. They're hearing this and saying, these are the things that we must stand on. These are the things that we must be firm in. Paul gives Titus the very authority to not only establish elders, but to preach and teach without the need of compromising the gospel. Paul shows Titus that this grace that God has given reaches down to the lowest valley. Paul will restate this truth again in Titus chapter 3 verse 3 where he says to be gentle in all you do because here it is for we too, we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Friends, that was us. Paul tells Titus, that was us. That was you. We have too many churches out here 
trying to acquiesce to the culture. We have too many Christians willing to want to acquiesce to the culture for the sake of being politically correct. We have too many churches compromising for the sake of cancel culture. We don't want to say it because, oh, I might lose my job. Oh, I might lose this. Oh, I might lose this. No, no. Paul told Titus, you stand firm. A church that does not stand on the truth of God's word and fails to preach the whole counsel of God is, dare I say it, a weak church. So many spineless churches because we want to fit in. I said a last service. I'll say it again. Don't get caught up in what the culture is saying and is doing. The same message that we're sharing right now, Paul shared this exact same message with Titus. In a Cretan culture full of liars, murderers, thieves, and gossips. Doing their own thing, teaching their own doctrine. And friend, there's some more crazy stuff that's popping up now. You got social justice. You got the critical race theory. I'm just going to call it out as it is. That if you aren't standing firmly on the truth of the gospel, those things that could sound good, look good, have the greatest intentions for people, if you aren't in the text, you miss it. The character of God is justice. The very nature of God is love. There is no need for social justice. Justice at the end of the day is justice. Don't let the world fool you to thinking that you have to incorporate all of these other things in order to be accepted. I love what Timothy Keller says. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you less. You are fully accepted in Jesus Christ as a believer. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'm going to live and I am going to work to the glory of God until he calls me home. And I pray that's the same thing that you are going to do. Friends, that may your life, may my life, may our lives be marked by the grace of God so that those who see us will want to know the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is from everlasting to everlasting. There is no end to your goodness. There's no end to your kindness. There's no end to your love. Oh, and to think that you thought so much about us that you sent your son. Where would we be if not for your grace? We would be lost. But Lord, let us in knowing the truth of what you've done. Let our lives be these movie trailers for others to see, to know that it's not about being perfect. It is about being Christ-like. It is about pointing them to you, the perfect one, the holy one, the righteous one. May pride die in our hearts 
May humility be marked in our lives so that when people see us and we have a message to share, it's not a message that we created, it's a message that you freely gave. God, we'll be ever so careful. Help us be ever so careful to love our neighbor, even when we don't agree with them. That in us loving them and telling them the truth in love, that they will come to know the God of love and justice. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.